If you have your Bible this morning, I would encourage you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 today. Uh, We're going to be in chapters 2 and 3 in this series called Jesus is Better. We're looking at 10 ways Jesus surpasses everything this summer. Uh, The reason why uh, the book of Hebrews is about that, you'll remember from last week, the writer is trying to encourage some early Christians not to give up on following Jesus. Uh, And we know today, maybe our reasons are different than theirs, but there's all kinds of temptations to give up or at least to slow down and hide uh, in our relationship with Jesus. And these 10 reasons, I hope, are going to be like medicine to the soul uh, to help us get strength and rally and recover as we follow him. Uh, So look, and I'm going to read today starting in verse 5. If you don't have your Bible, it's printed for you there in the bulletin. It is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come, about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone has testified. What is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for him? You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to them, but we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and by whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect, through what he suffered. Both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the assembly, I will sing your praises. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, he says, here I am and the children God has given me. Since the children had flesh and blood, He too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. For surely it is not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason he had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. But Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of the house is greater or has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house, and we are his house. If indeed, we hold firmly to our confidence and hope in which we glory. This is God's word. 
What a beautiful passage. I think it reminds us of something very unique about Jesus. There's a lot of things unique about Jesus in case you haven't noticed it. And one of the things I think that's most unique is that Jesus accomplished more in his death than he accomplished in his life. Think about that. There's almost nobody that I can think of in history who can make that claim. Uh, there are a few people, of course, whose lives are marked by their deaths, and we remember their death you know, a lot. I mean, think about JFK. Everybody who was alive, some of you all in the room were alive. You remember the day where you were probably when JFK was killed. Most books about JFK will probably spend a lot of time talking about that day because it was so unexpected and tragic. And yet, I don't think anybody would say JFK achieved more on his death day than he did any other day of his life, right? Nobody would say that. In fact, it would be a little bit of an insulting thing to say, wouldn't it? Same thing with Abraham Lincoln. I mean, his death was a big deal. None of us were alive, I don't think, when Abraham Lincoln uh, died. But nevertheless, I don't think people would say he achieved more. Same thing with Martin Luther King. You remember where you were if you were alive when Martin Luther King was shot. But very few would say he achieved more on his dying day than he did on his living days. But with Jesus, when you go to the gospel stories, they not only spend an inordinate amount of time talking about how he died, but they actually make the claim that nothing that he did during his life was greater than what he did when he gave up his life on the cross. This passage explains why. It's because the death of Jesus actually caused death itself to die forever. You see, that's the whole point there at the beginning of chapter 2 or chapter 3, rather, where he says, fix your thoughts on Jesus. Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was a great guy, right? He was God's man, but he was just a servant. He was just a religious leader and teacher, which is a great thing for God to send out a religious leader and teacher. But Jesus is so much more than a religious leader or teacher. Jesus is the son, it says, over God's house, whose death actually caused death to work backwards. So that everybody who believes in him would no longer, it says, be under the slavery of the fear of death. That's what we want to see this morning. Jesus is better than anyone or anything else because he causes death to die so we can live for God. Did you hear that? He causes death to die so that we, you and I, believers in Christ, could live for him. If you'll look at your bulletin, there are three uh, points that I want to walk us through today from the passage. The purpose of God, the plan of God, and the people of God. Uh, or to put it in terms of questions, why does Jesus take aim at death? You know, what makes that enemy number one, that God sent his son into the world to take aim straight at death? Second, how did Jesus cause death to die? And lastly, what difference does Jesus' victory over death make in our lives? Okay? So first of all, let's look at the purpose of God. Why does Jesus take aim at death? Well, the answer to that question might seem actually completely obvious, right? You say, well, of course God took aim at death because death stinks. Death hurts. Death, you know, causes all kinds of pain. Almost every tear that is shed in the world, if you think about it, can be traced back to death in some way. Just the idea that our lives don't last forever is very heartbreaking to come to terms with. I think most people never come to terms with it. They actually die not having come to terms with the fact that they are mortal. 
and that their life will not keep going on forever and ever. So we may think what an obvious thing. God wants to send his son into the world to relieve us of the discomfort of death. And actually, that's what he says later in the passage. He says it there in, um, in verse 15. Jesus came to break the power of him who holds the power of death, Satan, to free those who through all their lives long were held in slavery. Slavery by the fear of death. There's a kind of slavery, isn't it? To know that you're going to die, but not to know when or how. To not to really know, apart from Scripture, not to really know what's coming afterwards. There's a kind of slavery that comes from the fear that grips us because of death. But I want you to notice something this morning. That is not the first reason that the author gives for why Jesus took on death. That's an important reason that it relieves us from our slavery and our discomfort. We'll get there in a minute. But if you look at at verse 5 of chapter 2 and the first few verses of our passage, he actually gives another more primary, more, more awesome reason. Look at what it says. Verse 5, it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come about which we are speaking. But there is a place where someone, which, which I love that, by the way, just as a side note, verse 6. He goes on to quote scripture, Psalm 8. Uh, and apparently the writer of scripture is not much different than me and you. He says, somewhere someone said. You know, he doesn't remember, maybe he doesn't remember the reference, you know, Psalm 8 uh, verses uh, 3 and 4 or something like that. Instead he says, somewhere Somebody once said, what is mankind that you're mindful of him? What is the son of man that you care for him? And listen to this, verse 7. You made them a little lower than the angels. You crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to humanity. And yet, because of death, because of sin, which causes death, we do not right now see everything in subjection to human beings. But what we do see is Jesus, who became a human being and died so that he might be lifted up to the place where human beings were meant to be. In other words, the writer here is saying, Jesus' beef with death goes a whole lot deeper than the fact that it makes me feel uncomfortable. Jesus' beef with death comes from the fact that it's a dishonor to God's purpose in the world. All you got to do is look at the very first page of the Bible and you'll see exactly what he's talking about. God made human beings in his image. He crowned them with glory and honor. He says, I'm going to give you dominion over all the creatures. It's almost like God was saying, you're going to be a vice president to me. Uh, You're going to be a vice king uh, helping me rule over the world. And that's an exalted place. Just for a little while lower than the angels. Because God had promised that if humanity obeyed him, they would be brought into glory with him. And yet, page 2 of the Bible shows that we do not yet see that happening because human beings decided they would not go God's way but their own way. And so the reason God sent his son into the world primarily was to restore the purpose of God. Death offends God. Because death disrupts God's purpose to have a people for himself called by his name. A people that he can love, a people that will praise him, and a people that by loving and praising him will be brought one day into the glory that he has. Did y'all know God has a purpose for the world? Which means, of course, God has a purpose for your life. Your life is not random. 
This world is not random. We didn't just evolve through random processes. We came into the world by intention, by design from God, from the great creator. And that great creator had this beautiful plan, especially for human beings like us, people. God loved people. And sin, that's why it's such a tragedy. It's, it's, not, it's not just because it makes my life terrible, which it does, and that is a tragedy. But it's a tragedy because it actually dishonors the Lord. It, it attempts to thwart or, or turn back the purpose of God in my life. And therefore, death comes. Death disrupts. It shows that human beings, instead of being crowned with glory and honor, are crowned with guilt and shame. Laid low into the dust. That's why death is such a thing that grips us with fear, with doubt, with unbelief. It's, it's just what makes it a, a slave driver in our lives. It's because even if we're not aware, and I realize you may be listening in or you may be here and you don't know what you believe or you're not sure if you're a Christian, I realize you may not even accept this premise, but I want you to ask yourself deep in your heart, don't you understand that death is a whole lot more, is about a whole lot more than just the physical loss of life? Don't you feel that? Don't you feel there's something of a soul, perhaps, that you stand to lose? Isn't that the reason why you're so worried about it? Isn't that the reason why you're running scared most of your life? There is a soul issue here. Well, the Bible actually has an explanation for why that might be. And here it is. We do not now see everything in subjection to human beings the way God designed it. God's design has been disrupted. And yet his son came. It says there, we do see Jesus. The son of God who is made a little lower than the angels for a little while. So that he might taste death for everybody by the grace of God. And that through tasting death, he would be crowned with glory and honor. We sang it earlier, right? Crown him with many crowns. He is crowned with many crowns now so that he might take part of that crown and hand it over to us. There's something important for us to remember here. Probably the first thing that we should learn as Christians, but I think we are slow to learn it. We should learn our place in God's world. That's one of the things that Jesus restores us to, learning our place. We have a hard time with that. Sometimes we think way too low of ourselves. We don't see the dignity that we've been given because God created us in his image. Other times we think way too high of ourselves. It's as if Jesus came just to meet my felt needs. Just to make me comfortable and soothe me and give me financial peace and all that kind of stuff. Or political peace or whatever it is. Jesus came for so much more than that. We should not have a too low view of ourselves nor a too high view. Instead, where true health comes from, where true holiness comes from, is by aiming at exactly what God aims at. That we would be a people who are able, by grace, to enter into glory with him. To be brought as a family before the Father and made like Jesus Christ. The Son with a capital S. Us, we're little sons with capital, lowercase s's, or little daughters with lowercase d's. But we're being brought in. To experience the glory and honor that Jesus won for us. Jesus did not come simply to meet your felt needs. Let me tell you. It's a little bit like climbing a mountain. Have you ever done that? Tried to climb to the top of a mountain? I've done it a couple times. And when you climb a mountain, try to get to the peak, 
There are places along the way, you know, rest stations that you can stop at. Usually they have beautiful views. Uh, if you only go halfway up to the halfway rest station and turn around and come back, are you ever going to get to the top? Of course not, right? That's common sense. You're never going to get to the top. But if you go all the way to the top, will you have gone to the halfway point, to the two-thirds point, to the one-fourth point? Will you have seen all the sights if you make it to the top? Yes. You'll get the highest view and everything else thrown in. But if you only go so far up the mountain, you'll never get the highest view. And it's similar here. If we don't understand that the main purpose of the Bible and of Christianity and of our lives is to glorify God, we're not reaching the peak of where God has called us to go. We may feel a little bit of comfort and help now and then from the one-fourth or the one-half or the two-thirds rest place, but we're not going to reach the place that God from the beginning designed us to reach. But if we're intent by grace to make it all the way to the top, if understanding that we were made for God's glory is in fact the, the central driving force of our lives, we will experience great comfort and peace. All the things, along, all the added benefits of Jesus, the being free from the slavery to death and all that stuff, we will, we will experience the collateral benefits of knowing Jesus. But you can only experience the collateral benefits if you're not primarily aiming at the collateral benefits. I hope that challenges you. I know it challenged me to think about it this week. I, I thought, am I aiming at what God is aiming at? Or am I aiming at something that's significantly lower than what God is aiming at? Right? It's okay to come to Jesus for a little help here and there. But don't get it twisted. That ain't the main reason to come to Jesus. And it ain't the main reason Jesus came to you. He came to you to restore the honor of his Father and the glory of his Father. Big deal. Secondly, let's look at the plan of God. How did Jesus cause death to die exactly? Now, we all know this. A method matters, doesn't it? Uh, not just that you do something, but how you do it matters. I'll give you two examples. Uh, say, if you're married, say you and your spouse go on a date. Or if you're not married, you go on a date with a boyfriend or girlfriend. Um, on that date, it's not just enough that you're on a date if the whole time he's on his phone, you're on your phone. She's on her phone, you're on his, right? If you're just the whole time each texting somebody else or checking Facebook, or maybe if you're together but you're arguing the whole time, is that a good date? Do you want to go back on a date like that? No, it's terrible, right? Even though technically you've had a date. On paper, you've checked it off. Check, date night, boom, done for the month or done for the week or whatever. Yet the experience was terrible because the method that you took to try to carry out that goal is all wrong. We know that too when we walk into the doctor's office. Most doctors know what they're doing. I would say almost all of them do, right? And most of them do good things when you go see them. But don't you know some doctors are rude and some doctors are nice. Some doctors actually explain themselves. Other doctors don't. We call it bedside manner. Would you rather go to a doctor with good bedside manner and good medical skill or a doctor with good medical skill but terrible bedside manner? Obvious, right? Method matters. Well, in verses 10 all the way down to verse 18, that's what the writer is saying. Jesus didn't just come into the world to cause death to die. Check, boom, 
you're saved. Check. He goes into the details of the method that Jesus uses. And the method that he uses is something that should stoke our, the fire of our passion and delight in Jesus. Because Jesus did some incredible things in how he faced off with death and won us back to his father. Uh, notice, first of all, there in verse 10, in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, just stop right there, it was fitting that God, when you say something is fitting, what do you mean? It was exactly the way it should have been done. It was, it was right on. Perfect. You can't really make it any better. It was fitting. It was exactly what the doctor ordered. Well, here it says God did things through Jesus in a fitting way. The exact, not just the outcome was, was what God wanted, but the exact method that God wanted the outcome to be carried out. In other words, God had a plan for what Jesus would do and how he would do it, and Jesus came into the world to do exactly that. And here's what it is. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer, Jesus, of their salvation, perfect through what he, what does it say? Suffered. Wow. That's the first thing we see. The method that Jesus came in saving us from death was that he would actually enter our world to suffer with us and alongside of us. It says later in the passage, verse 18, because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Now God could have sent his son into the world in a million different ways, right? A million different ways. He could have came as a earthly king and that would have made sense in fact I think a lot of people probably think that would have made more sense you know if Jesus had been born in a palace and had been decked out in all the regal robes and had gone out with armies behind him and swords and I mean that would have that would have communicated right off the bat son of God savior of the world but that was not the fitting way that God had decided from all eternity that he was wanting to do it the fitting way was to send his son bloodied, bruised, spit on, hated, rejected. In other words, to send his son through everything that you and I might go through in this world. All of it. Jesus went all the way down into the deepest mud. Now why would that be? Why would he want to make Jesus, it says, perfect through what he suffered rather than just perfect through what he accomplished. Why suffering? Well, it's of course. So that you and I could know every day of our lives that God is not distant from us in our suffering. He's with us. A suffering is not something you ever do alone. Suffering is also not something that's ever wasted in God's plan, in God's economy. Isn't that, I mean... Isn't that good news? Suffering is not wasted and suffering is not ever alone. Why? Because Jesus went there with you. He suffers alongside you. And we know this, the suffering of Jesus accomplished the greatest thing he ever accomplished. His death was his greatest achievement. That's amazing. That's amazing. That God would actually not just send his son to have a comfortable life. He could have. He could have given him lifestyles of the rich and famous. He didn't do that. He gave him a poor life, full of rejection, 
full of death, full of suffering. But that's not it. Look at what it says next. Both the one who makes people holy, verse 11, and those who are made holy are of the same family. Here's another wonderful thing about Jesus' method. He actually joined our family, our human family. He was literally a human being with a family tree. Jesus could have taken an ancestry DNA test and it would have come back and popped all the things that were true of his mother and true of his grandparents and great-grandparents and all the family tree of Israel. He had the same DNA. He joined the human family. Isn't that amazing? Jesus did not want to stay apart from us. God did not want to stay apart from us, even though we had fallen so far from where we were originally created. We were created for glory and honor. We fell into shame and guilt, disobedience, rebellion, violence, all the, all the junk that fills the world. And yet Jesus came into the junk. That's the point, after all, of all those long genealogies of Jesus in the Gospels. It's to show you Jesus' family tree's got skeletons, just like yours does, just like mine does. Because the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. And that's true not just of Jesus when he was here, it's true of Jesus now. Hopefully this blows your mind, but the king of the universe today, who is crowned with many crowns, who's reigning over everything, he's your older brother if you have faith in him. He's still in the same family. He's, he's in his flesh right now before the Lord. He reigns over the, over the world, yes, as God, but he reigns over the world as a human being, bona fide, flesh and blood. Now, that flesh and blood is glorious beyond compare. It's a lot more glorious than mine and yours, but nevertheless, it's real flesh and blood. That's why he says there in verse uh, 12 and th you know, 13 and 14, he starts quoting a bunch of places from the Bible, and especially verse 12. Look at it. I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the assembly, or literally in the church. I will sing your praises. In other words, Jesus is actually singing with us this morning. He's looking onto the worship bulletin and singing the songs right along with us, praising his Father with his, with his people because he has identified himself that closely with us. This is God's method. It's not just that God saves you that matters. You've got to pay attention to how he does because how he does is actually what's going to cause you to love him more than anything else. Now, there's one last thing. We've got to kind of hurry up a little bit here, but one last thing is that he actually died for our sins. So not only was he with us in our suffering, not only is he like us in every way as humans, but he was for us in his death. It says there in verse 14, the children partook of flesh and blood, and so he shared in their humanity so that he might, by his death, break the power of death. And then, uh, look again in verse 17. Uh, he died so that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. The death of Jesus was, we call it, substitutionary. Substitutionary. Jesus was a substitute. God should have put me to death because I've, I've ruined his glory and honor. But instead of putting me to death, he put his son to death. And Jesus willingly went to that place. He willingly went to the cross and offered up his life on the altar 
before his heavenly father. What does that remind me of? It reminds me that I may die one day, but I ain't really dead. He died my death, my real death. I mean, he died my, what the Bible calls the second death. Not to get into too many details, but basically he took the sting out of death. What makes death so stinging, I was saying earlier, was the fact that you're not only losing your body, you're losing your soul forever. You're, you're passing from this world into the judgment of God, and that doesn't, it doesn't look very good for us, y'all, against the judgment of God. And yet, because Jesus died in my place, I know that whatever day I die, I don't know when it's going to be. And there's a little bit of nervousness about that. But the, but the fear is really lifted because I know that that death really is not a death. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, yet shall they live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never really die. And then he asks, do you believe this? That's the real question this morning. My point here is just to kind of unfold to you a little bit, just like the writer does, some of the details of Jesus' method. Because just like a doctor, just like a date night, it's not so much that he did something for you. You've got to pay attention to how he did it. Because the treasures of his glory as a person are found there. Jesus did his greatest work by being made a poor peasant person in a poor, forgotten part of the world, to live a poor, forgotten life, basically. To achieve his greatest thing through a bloody, awful, violent death. So that you and I, shameful, guilty, might be returned back to the place of glory and honor with the Father. Do you have a habit of marveling at Jesus? You should. I should. That's where praise really comes from. Spending time thinking about how he does what he does. That's the second thing. Lastly, the people of God. What difference does Jesus' victory over death make in our lives? Well, this is where we're going to look at chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6. Uh, notice how he begins chapter 3, therefore. And so what he's trying to do is he's trying to show because all this stuff is true, Jesus restored the purpose of his father. Jesus acted according to the plan of his father. Here's the way your life, O people of God, is supposed to be. This is what he's saying. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus. The word there for fix your thoughts is a very particular word. It's a word that means concentrate with extreme care. Study it. Like you might do before a test, study it twice, study it three times, keep going over it, know it cold. Study Jesus so much that if someone woke you up at 3 a.m. and asked you, what does Jesus mean to you, you'd have an answer. Besides just, what are you doing in my house? Right? You would have a, a deep heart answer to that question. Not just, oh, let, let me think, i got to remember what I memorized. Memorization is good, but it's not just about memory. It's about the heart really having an answer deep within for what Jesus means to you. That comes from fixing your eyes on Jesus. It seems like these early Christians were tempted to stop doing that, probably because they were being harassed and persecuted for doing it, and they just felt like maybe it wasn't worth all the effort. And so they were tempted to go back, perhaps, to the way they lived their life before they became Christians, 
which was as Jewish people. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, in fact, God designed the Jewish way of life through Moses. But what this passage is saying is that the Jewish way of life has been superseded now by something greater because Moses was just a servant appointed over the house for a time. Jesus is the son over the house forever. And if you've got Jesus, it's not that you don't ever have to listen to Moses. It's just you shouldn't be fixing your thoughts on Moses. You should be fixing your thoughts on Jesus. Because Moses, after all, was just really speaking to you about Jesus until Jesus could come. Think about that. Fix your eyes on him because he came into this world, was like you, with you, and died for you. He is the son over the house of God. He is the builder of God's house. He alone can truly set us free. Therefore, fix your thoughts. It says, we are, look at verse 6, we are God's house. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is here in the church every Sunday, singing praises with us, helping me preach, helping you listen, helping us all read the scriptures and respond with, with faith. Jesus is here. He's here with us. Why is he here with us? Because you are his house. You are by faith in him. You're his house. And just like me and you, Jesus loves to be home. Home where the music plays, right? (laughs) Home is where the heart is, we say. All those cliches we talk about with home. And Jesus is the same way. This is where his heart is, y'all. This morning, he's here. You are his house. If we hold firmly to the confidence and hope in which we glory. How should your life be different? Because Jesus was victorious over death. Simple. The fear of God ought to overwhelm the fear of death. The fear of God ought to overwhelm the fear of death. Somebody once said, I don't know who it is, but I've heard it quoted, that when you fear, when you don't fear God, you have to fear everything else. It's the way it works. When you don't fear God, you're going to fear everything else. You're going to be afraid of everything. But when you learn to fear God, you have nothing else to fear. That's what Jesus does for us. Now, that's not the ultimate purpose he came. We, We talked about that. But if you aim for the ultimate purpose, you will receive the added benefit that you do not have to be a slave to any kind of fear in your life. You don't have to because you now fear the Lord. To fear him means your your heart is full of affection for him, for love, love. To fear means you bow your heart before Jesus. A a way to put it that's in in our kind of common language is fearing God means taking God seriously. And when you take God real serious, you don't take yourself that serious. And you don't take the changing circumstances of life that serious. A dear friend of mine says, a Christian afraid of death is like a plumber afraid of water. I think he's right. A Christian afraid of death is like a plumber afraid of water. As one early church father says, Christ's death brings a blessing instead of a curse. Joy instead of grief. A feast instead of mourning in this holy joy of Easter. If you believe in Easter, if you believe in Jesus rose from the dead, then you being afraid of death anymore is like a plumber afraid of water, scared to death of it. 
doesn't make any sense. Martin Luther says, he who fears death is, or is not willing to die is not sufficiently Christian. You need to get more Christian. And how do you get more Christian? Fixing your eyes on Jesus. Growing yourself in what the Bible calls your most holy faith. Taking God seriously. We read in our Old Testament scripture reading that God was going to create a feast on the mountain because he was going to remove the shroud, the, the blanket that covered the whole world, which was death. A feast on the mountain. And that in that day, God's people were going to say, surely this is our God. Surely he has saved us. Surely no one can compare to him. I just want to say that that is a beautiful model of what it's saying here in these first verses. God has set a feast for us in the place of, of mourning and death. We don't yet see it. We don't yet see it. But we do see Jesus. Made lower than the angels. Brought down to the cross. And yet crowned with glory and honor because by the grace of God, he tasted death for everyone. Let's take that seriously. Let's take the details of Jesus seriously. Let's think about him in our hearts and minds. Let's, let's feed ourselves with what really nourishes Christ. Amen? Amen.